0: Welcome readers. Well, I mean listeners. Crap. <laughs> is dear reader (laughs)
1: it's dear reader so we're addressing the reader so that's true
0: good save thank you
1: (laughs) so yes welcome readers
0: my name is michael and i'm one half of your hosting team
1: (laughs) hello i'm emily i'm the other. (laughs)
0: And if this is your first time listening to the show, well, uh, we basically are old friends who have had a long relationship with reading and a long friendship, and uh, we're kind of struggling with reading in different ways now that we're sort of, you know, in our mid or late 30s. (laughs) And there's our third host, making his presence known.
1: Yeah, that's the baby.
0: (laughs) We'll do a little bit of catching up with each other. How have you been?
1: Uh, You know, I've been stuck in the house a lot, uh, Mm -hmm. but it is like above zero and sunny today so yeah. i was just driving around with the windows rolled down blasting my favorite star trek deep space nine podcast <laughs> you know, real pulling cool.
0: up to the corner and everyone being like whoa yeah cool
1: <laughs> i am the kind of mom who sings along with the radio and my kid is the kind of kid who hates it so <laughs> that's fun. oh here's this the worst moment well Best and worst, I was loudly singing along with Our Lady Peace on the oldies channel.
0: hmm Yep. I mean, so, that's... That's
1: my <laughs> stage of life.
0: I, I just came from getting my hair cut, and as I was sitting in the chair and she was brushing out my hair before she was getting started, I was like, so many white hairs. <laughs> So, I guess, tangentially, this is also a podcast about aging, because it's yeah, what we're doing. Yeah, haven't
1: meant it to me, but it is.
0: <laughs> well, I have just been getting over a cold. Like yourself, it is finally starting to get a little bit spring-like here in Toronto. And uh, I have... I found this winter more of a trial than ones in the past, I have to say. So I'm really pleased.
1: For me, too. Partly because I have two kids under three. But. Yes. <laughs>
0: Your older Eddie, is he um does he enjoy winter? I know I loved it when no, I was young.
1: He's not really big enough. Like mm-hmm. he can't make a good snowball yet and he's a little bit afraid of sledding, so and he's like we went out to play one day a little while ago and he like sank too far down in the snow
0: (laughs) i'm sorry for (laughs) laughing i just remember that happens early in wuthering heights and (laughs) i believe the narrator lockwood says that it's a it's a unique predicament that has to be experienced to be understood yeah
1: so 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 eddie had that and uh, yeah he's he's not a big fan and with the baby i can't go out with him as much as i'd like and he's too little to go out by himself
0: yes i should say in
1: a couple of years i hope he'll be playing in the snow but he's not there
0: I think I can remember being six or seven years old and very obnoxiously, like feeling superior to adults who used to complain about snow because mm-hmm. snow was fun. What's wrong with them?
1: <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh god. So how is your reading, Min?
1: Not bad. I tried to read the Incendiaries and I couldn't. This isn't the mm-hmm. knock on the. Um, the Author. Uh, I just couldn't get time to get into it. And it's the kind of book you need to devote some significant time to in the beginning to figure out who everyone is and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I gave up on that one, which was a little disappointing. But the book I want to talk to about today, mm-hmm. um, I've actually read twice in the last week. So,
0: all right. So, yeah. do, do you want to start us off this time?
1: Michael, have you ever read a book that you feel like If everyone could read this, the whole world would be a better place.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, so I want to talk about Kid Gloves by Lucy Knisley. It's actually a graphic novel, or I guess a graphic memoir. It's her own experience. It's factual. Mm -hmm. And it's her experience of pregnancy and childbirth. And obviously this speaks very much to me directly because I've been pregnant and given birth twice in the last three years, but I think it really encapsulates a lot of the myths and misconceptions around pregnancy and childbirth that can be so isolating okay. to the people going through it. Um, it. It's really bizarre. And it was a real shock to me going through because half the population are women, roughly most women at some point in their lives will be pregnant. And, and, most of those will have ch- children will go through childbirth, but there is so little known and understood mm-hmm. about the whole process. And although not everyone will be a parent, not everyone will experience pregnancy and childbirth. Everyone has been a baby. Mm. Every, you know Whether you have a relationship or even have ever met your mother, someone birthed you um and i think we would all be better if we understood that process more Mm. i think a lot of people think they do i i thought i did before i went through it and lucy Nisley has a whole chapter on how she felt very educated on reproductive health before she got into it Mm -hmm. because she herself ran up against uh like a lot of women one in four she had a miscarriage and she had fertility problems and she had a difficult childbirth. She nearly died in childbirth, which is a shockingly common thing and a cultural problem. Um, she n- suffered from eclampsia, which kills twice as many American women as Canadian women. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for that. The reason for that is these women are not getting the same level of prenatal care. Yes. Now, I could rant a lot about this, but. The way she's able to talk about these complicated emotional issues and impart real knowledge about how a uterus works, how it actually works, about how the health care industry that deals with pregnant women the whole concept that as long as the baby's fine the mom doesn't really matter which is very prevalent the way doctors male and female ignore their f- their patients and their concerns passing it off as nervous mom hysteria but she's able to do this with such heart and such humor that the book even though it deals with some very dark topics is really very uplifting it just blew me away. I want I want this in schools. So I want everyone to know.
0: <laughs> Actually, that sounds like a good idea. That sounds like the sort of thing that would be good to get kids in grade nine or something to read.
1: Yeah, I'm going to make... Like, my kids, unless something drastic happens, probably will not have give birth themselves being both born male. But... I'm going to make them read it <laughs> when mm-hmm. they're older because they need to know where they came from and where everyone comes from.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I also think it's important too not to sort of limit our reading to experiences that we personally might identify with or have mm-hmm. like it's probably would be really good for men to be made to read things about women's experiences sure
1: (laughs) yeah and and this one especially because one of the reasons that this is so hard and that there are so many myths and misconceptions is that the reality is not discussed mm -hmm. i mean women's health in all aspects is way behind men's health because it hasn't been well researched yeah um there are places where it was illegal for a man to witness a birth the family that invented the forceps which saved once they were well known saved millions of lives um they kept it a family secret for almost 100 years oh wow yeah because they didn't want (laughs) to (laughs) share they were making a lot of money off being the doctors who didn't lose as many babies or and so they they kept it a trade secret i yeah
0: i hate how profit and medicine are
1: i know but even when it's not Mm -hmm. um one thing i mentioned before is um This idea that as long as the baby's healthy, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. That's where it stops. And I have this one story of what happened to me that I think perfectly encapsulates it. Now, you know, being Canadian, nobody made any money off my birth. I owe the hospital $18, which is what I'm being charged for. And my doctor was a woman in her 30s. So don't picture like some scruffy old man who wants to go play golf. You know, mm-hmm. she was reasonable and sympathetic. But in my third trimester, I went to her and I said, I have a shooting, stabbing pain up in my vagina. And she said, OK, that's pretty com- normal. That's pretty common. And I said, and she said, and your baby's fine. I'm like, great. So what do we do about this? And she's like, oh, there's nothing to do. <laughs> and I said, well, what causes it? And she's like, oh, we don't know. She said, the old nurses call it the pain up through. Uh Now, can you imagine as, you know, someone who has a penis Mm -hmm. going to the doctor and saying, I have a stabbing, shooting pain in my dick. And the doctor being like, oh, yeah, that's really common, but we are not going to do anything about it.
0: I mean, (laughs) I mean, I wish I could say that I was surprised, but I I know that (laughs) women's complaints yeah. are often put to the side not just in terms of reproduction and pregnancy but generally oh, like yeah. there are, there are reasons <laughs> w- women often sicken and die f- by w- through preventable things because i know doctors mm-hmm. either uh, don't listen to them or in your case she did listen to you but like yeah. the medical infrastructure isn't there to do anything about it but like w- she couldn't give you painkillers because they would like threaten the baby or it. A,
1: a lot of the drugs they don't know Because they don't test drugs on pregnant women. Ah. And it kind of makes sense, obviously. You don't want to risk the baby. But the result is there's very few pain reliefs. I can't take decongestants um, when I'm nursing. And I don't even know why. Nobody knows why. They just don't want to risk it. Right. Because they've never tested. And this is true for a lot. A lot Mm -hmm. with women. And partly it's just a lack of research partly it's because birth is such a sacred thing in almost all cultures that it's maintains its mystery which is harmful to everyone it's very isolating for the pregnant woman this is Uh, what happened to lucy Nisley. she did tell her doctor about some of the symptoms she was having and if this had been identified, she would not have gone through what she went through. But he didn't pick up on what she was saying, or he thought she was exaggerating, or whatever reason, he didn't send her for further testing. But if she had spoken to anyone else with any experience, she would have known, like, that person probably would have moved forward. She even asked specifically is this eclampsia because she Googled enough to know that she was having symptoms of eclampsia. Mm -hmm. This is another American difference. And I mean, being Canadian, I think everyone would know what I think of the American system, but I went to the emergency room a few times with each pregnancy just to be sure, just to make, you know, like I was feeling off or I was feeling sick or something was weird and it wasn't, Doctor's business hours, so I just went into the hospital. To be sure. Yep. Um, if Lucy had done that, then this would have been noticed and picked up on. But mm-hmm. she didn't because she her insurance wouldn't cover it. Or exactly, you know, or she was even thinking that way.
0: I mean, this is a cultural thing. I absolutely notice Americans versus Canadians. Mm-hmm. Canadians will much more likely do preventative care. Or oh, this is a little bit off. I'll go get it checked. Yeah. Americans wait until it is catastrophically bad because they're afraid of incurring a huge amount of debt anyways go on
1: yeah no her her doctor thought it was fine she was worried she was overreacting because she had already developed um some ptsd from her her miscarriages and her fertility issues and again these things are so common like did you know one in four women have a miscarriage
0: I didn't know that exact statistic, but I did know that miscarriages are much more common than people think.
1: Yeah. I I didn't know that number (coughs) till I had one. (laughs) Yeah. Most, most women, well, not most women, I guess one in four is not a majority, but it's a lot. Yeah. A lot of women. Mm -hmm. And you know, when we, and a lot of women have trouble conceiving and a lot of women have complications in their pregnancies, but because it's so little discussed in our culture, that it's very isolating, we feel a bit of failure Mm -hmm. um, in this task that should be so natural.
0: I'm just thinking about various reasons why that might be. And then I was thinking, rather than me theorizing on the fly, I should invite you to theorize about it, because you have more direct experience and have probably thought about it more than I have.
1: Well, and that's the thing. Lucy Nisley goes through a number of reasons. There's misogyny. There's the fact that it's just not a man's problem most of the time. You know, if a woman feels sick or, you know, It's not the man going through it. And then, of course, men being in charge of medical research. But there's also the sacred and the religious aspect. Um, This is, you know, very much the province of women. In most cultures and religions, it's a a miraculous event with any kind of number of ritual and belief surrounding it. Yeah. It's very common in the Christian faith to find that people f- believe women are supposed to suffer through it, mm-hmm. and that's actually weirdly become part of the natural childbirth movement. Yep, um, and this could get me a lot of internet problems if people certain people are listening
0: i think you should speak your mind on this yeah
1: but the problem is there's become this push that women should deliver so-called naturally as in without drugs now as a comedian i can't remember said unless it comes he comes out your nose you're delivering naturally (laughs) (laughs) you know he's coming out you're gonna experience it you know i had an epidural on my first and not on my second so i had a so-called natural childbirth for
0: my second there's a natural birth
1: yeah and uh there's pros and cons to both but the idea that you're not a real mother if you didn't feel him coming out Mm -hmm. is is very harmful
0: it seems super toxic (laughs)
1: Yeah, and it's very common, even amongst people who aren't religious. Um, I have a very good friend, a very good mom friend, and she never criticized me for having an epidural. Oh, buddy. Yeah, So she never criticized me for having an epidural, but when she found out I hadn't done my second, she was so proud of me. Weird. And she said uh, she was so glad I got to experience that, and I was mildly offended. Mm. I mean... I didn't really express this to her in the moment but my birth on one is just as good as my birth on the other. Yeah. In terms of my beautiful little babies I have.
0: Yeah. And I mean I I'm just thinking about pain more generally and the cultural signification of it cuz you anticipated where I wanted to take the the conversation in terms of you know the idea that oh you know pregnancy you're meant to suffer you're supposed to suffer it's somehow is ennobling or spiritually elevating to experience that pain.
1: Yeah, I know that's not just for childbirth either.
0: No, it's not just for childbirth. There's all kinds of things that are like that. But, like, well, while someone can say that that was their experience, I think it's really bad to say that it has to be everyone's experience. Mm-hmm. And if there's the technology to ease <laughs> suffering, why not have that on the table?
1: (laughs) Exactly. I know a woman who had a very lovely birth. She, you know, had a nice day. She delivered fairly quickly. She didn't get an epidural because she didn't feel she needed one in Mm -hmm. the moment. And, you know, she had a great experience, but the fact of the matter is birth is incredibly painful and incredibly difficult before, we develop better medical techniques a lot of women died this way Mm -hmm. and it's important to remember that that we don't women aren't taking pain medication because they're lazy they're taking pain medication because they're in a lot of
0: pain yeah and i mean like i don't think anyone is gonna get crap if they're like oh my shoulder hurts i'm gonna Mm -hmm. take an advil
1: actually when you put it that way it almost links into this idea that mental health medications Mm. aren't real and necessary yeah you know there are certain kinds of suffering that is acceptable to ask for help and then there's certain kinds that aren't Mm. and these are the ones where it's not are the ones that affect groups i think that have been largely marginalized women and the mentally ill
0: I think that's correct.
1: Um, Obviously, this is something I'm very passionate about. But to take it back to the writing, this is obviously a huge topic and complicated. And she's able to encapsulate so much of it in a graphic that it's mostly cute pictures and you can read it in three hours.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Was this your first experience of a, a graphic memoir or, or sort of yeah, a personal well, nonfiction? graphic novel? I've, I've
1: read her two of her previous ones. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't read a lot of graphic novels. Maybe I should read more, um, but the ones I've seen before have not really appealed to me. Yeah I found Lucy Nisley through her Instagram. Because her child was born around the time my first child was. So she was drawing cartoons about a new mom. So I've been looking forward to this book for a couple of years. I'm even more looking forward to our next one. Because this one stops very shortly after she gets home from the hospital. So I'm looking forward to another one. But I did read an earlier book of hers where she was uh, like being a spoiled brat in Paris. (laughs) 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 And I was like... (laughs) she's grown as a as a person and as an artist
0: this is a genre that i i have encountered a few times uh and i guess sort of the greatest hits of the genre but they're they're really fantastic so um i would probably recommend things like Alison bechdel's fun home which is about growing up gay in the funeral home that your family also lives in and runs.
1: Okay, I've, he- I've heard about that
0: one. It's fantastic. This is a genre that, when it's good, it's so good. And, and I mean, I guess it's like memoir more generally. Like, the person needs to have an interesting life or an interesting story.
1: Or at <laughs> like, least be able to tell it very well. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the other thing about mm-hmm. this book, is that I've never read anything like it. But there's so, I know statistically, a lot of women have had this experience. I have a cousin who, also American, had eclampsia um, on the birth of her first child. and Based on what I know, probably went through exactly what Lucy nisely did. But she never told me about it, she, other than, you know, the broad stroke. She said, yeah, I had eclampsia, I had to stay extra time, blah, blah, blah.
0: Yep. So, I know – I mean, this is just making me think about all the women in my life who have had – pregnant, who who have given birth, let's say. And sometimes you will hear things like, it was difficult. Or I know that I had to spend some extra time in the hospital after the birth. But, like, the details are never forthcoming. And they're obviously not something you want to prize for because they're private. And you hope that the person is sharing as much as they feel comfortable to share – it's not like if someone else has a medical problem and they're like, oh, you know, I spent an overnight in the hospital because I, I had, I can't think of a, a an innocent medical problem that people wouldn't be embarrassed to share. but <laughs> <laughs> I had some innocent medical problem that I'm not embarrassed to to mention versus like, oh, the birth was difficult. End of conversation.
1: Yeah, and you probably get less as a man, too. True. Than True. I would necessarily get it because I've noticed as well. And I do this. We Talk about our births differently with other moms sure. than we do with other women. Uh-huh. Like, I was I was talking about how it felt to give birth without an epidural with a friend, and a mutual friend was approaching. Yeah. And I kind of stopped, because yep. the approaching friend had not had a child, and I didn't want to freak her out.
0: Yes. And I don't think that's being exclusionary. I, I think that's... I mean, I can think of lots of other things, like... If I'm, you know, with a few of my gay friends, uh, we might talk about the ins and outs of gay sex in a way we never would do in mixed company. I mean, it's not the same, but you get what I mean. When when you're with friends who have had a similar experience, and, and it's something that you would not talk about to someone who was not in the club, not out of a sense of excluding them, it's just you're comfortable those walls come down because you know the other person will understand where you're coming from
1: yeah and i agree and i think that's appropriate in many cases but i think there are too many walls around childbirth sure. especially because it is so universal
0: those walls have a, a human toll in you know there are people who die because of them
1: exactly i and and feel shame like i when I was pregnant, I could not stop thinking about Kim Kardashian. <laughs> yeah. Because she had two incredibly difficult births. I don't know the details, but I know they were very difficult. And I know that her doctor told her she would die on a third, which is why they used the surrogate. Mm. So that's extreme. Whatever she went through, it was extreme. Yeah. And of course, she has access to the best medical care in the world. But she's also so spoiled. And I was thinking, if she can handle this, what's wrong with me? Mm. You know, and and I would often think about Queen Elizabeth, who did this four times. Wow. She only had uh, anesthetic. No, she had. She did Twilight Sleep, which is a whole other kind of nightmare. I don't have time to get into (laughs)
0: there's
1: a, there's a dollop podcast that uh, on that, which I'm not going to listen to because it's too horrifying, but I've been told it's a very good resource Ah. on twilight
0: sleep. I mean, now I'm thinking more generally about the books that we think, are improving for people to read because mm-hmm. i mean that was one of the reasons why english is a subject in schools right. like in the late 19th century i mean it grew out of classics you know like people should like read homer and whatnot but it sort of came people came to be of the opinion that if you take a teenager and you expose them to hamlet they will become a better person
1: yes And I firmly believe that, about Hamlet and a lot of other things, including this book. This book, like, Lucy Nisley and Hamlet. That's what you Mm. read.
0: (laughs) I will agree in a modified sense, in that I think that the impulse back in the 1900s and 1800s and whatnot was very much a class impulse, which I don't agree with. And the kind of improvement they had in mind isn't one that i want to sign on for
1: okay i agree on that one yes.
0: however reading reading literature i think teaches empathy mm-hmm. and expands your horizons beyond your own personal experiences and those can't help but make a person be better I, I hope so yeah
1: definitely um because and i want to be clear i am very well educated on sexual health um i had a I'd only realized this recently. I had a health teacher who went rogue in grade nine, and she taught us
0: everything. Me too. I really value that.
1: I know. And I didn't realize, I thought everyone knew this. She talked about, uh, I mean, the usual things, of course, menstruation and uh, how to not get AIDS, which was a big deal, of course. Mm -hmm. But she also talked about consent and homosexuality. Yeah. And and how to be safe this way and how to be emotionally safe
0: mm-hmm.
1: and different kinds of contraception and how there's no such thing as a slut. Oh,
0: that's amazing.
1: Yeah, I went into getting pregnant thinking I knew everything. And I realized very quickly, not only did I know nothing, but a lot of the doctors don't know anything. And yeah. that's the scary part. Mm-hmm. So... That's why, like, I, I read this book thinking it would speak to me personally, and it did. But I really want everyone to know this, to know what women go through.
0: Yeah. Silence is death. Uh, talking about AIDS activism, you know? Yeah,
1: quite literally. And and that's another thing, is that we learn, a lot of people learn about sex in school But it's not so common to learn about homosexuality or infertility. Yeah. The emphasis in a lot of schools is preventing pregnancy, either through abstinence or safe sex. And I get that. But I think a lot of people leave with the impression it's much easier to get pregnant than it actually is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean... <laughs> because we live in a capricious and unfair universe. Mm-hmm. People will get pregnant when they don't want to and people who want to get pregnant will have great difficulty getting pregnant. Exactly. <laughs>
1: so common. Um yeah, a friend of mine put it. She said, "I thought if I even saw sperm I'd get pregnant," you know.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, we were both lucky in our grade 9 um sex ed education, but I'm just thinking about uh someone who I vaguely know. Who said that the Catholic school they went to the uh, the former nun who taught them sex and warned them not to get in a bath, not to get in a hot tub with a man because you might get pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I have to laugh. It's terrible. But like, yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah. Any given month, a healthy couple with no issues, heterosexual couple with no issues who aren't using protection have a twenty five percent chance of getting pregnant. Right. Now, if you're doing that continuously, most people three to five months will get pregnant, but not everyone. And I I, I do want to come back to Lucy nicely because, you know, our our podcast is about is about the writing. Yeah. And she is so eloquent and so open. It's not just what she's talking about, although that is important. It's how she talks about it. That makes it so wonderful and I think so teachable. Yeah, Michael, what have you been reading?
0: Right. So my thought this month was that it would be good for me to revisit an old favorite. Um, I wish I could remember specifically why I went to this one.
1: What, what um, did you read, Ada? I don't even oh, know. yes, that's true.
0: Uh, our listeners might be curious. Uh, although I suppose it's in the title. <laughs> it's you never the told Thin me Place. either. Oh, that's true. <laughs> uh, it's The Thin Place by Catherine Davis. Oh, yes, you did. yes uh, you did. Yeah, it was a while ago. And I can remember I read this book 10 years ago. And uh, I had a kind of evangelical zeal for it afterwards.
1: I read that on your insistence, I think,
0: yep, although absolutely. I can't really
1: remember it
0: i i thrust that book into several people's hands i was i think 26 or 27 and i was still it's very funny because i want to talk about empathy this book is a lot about empathy and i was lacking the empathetic (laughs) intelligence to understand that just because it lit me up like a firework display that wouldn't necessarily be the case for everyone else like someone who had the qualities that uh you know or, or appreciated the qualities that uh, i appreciated absolutely you should read it but uh not everyone you know?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because of course my book is one i feel that way about now mm-hmm. of course i don't expect everyone to react as strongly because it's not as personal but i do think everyone should read it for their own edification do you feel that way about that the thin place?
0: No, I certainly don't feel <laughs> that way now. Um and I well the thing is I I do love this book still. It it absolutely held up on rereading. But I, I'm going to talk about why I would not thrust it into every person's hand. But I mean your book was in part your book was in part political and educational and there's a social good that is served by getting people to read it. It's um, amazing.
1: But yes, giving birth is absolutely political.
0: A hundred percent. It
1: shouldn't be, but it is.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, basically, anything that a uh, that a non male, non white body does is politicized in our world, which is unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I saw a tweet today about a woman who didn't agree with cesarean sections. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think I saw that one too, probably. So I guess uh, she's
1: pro-infant and maternal death. that's
0: mm-hmm. the, only. Well, the cesarean section isn't a real delivery. <laughs> that's what the claim was. <laughs> yeah. Which, Jewish I don't know. Um, I mean, you can kill Macbeth. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a lot of people. I know I know a lot of people here are here because of cesarean sections. Me? Moms and babies.
0: Oh, were you yeah. a C-section? I was a C-section, yeah. So basically... I want to think about this book. So, this is an old book. I haven't read it in ten years. I loved it ten years ago. Um, I did not have that same deep enthusiasm for it, but it still moved me and appealed to me intellectually. So, The Thin Place. A thin place is a concept uh of places in the world where sort of the fabric of reality is thinner. And... um This is basically, uh, I would characterize this book as a work of postmodern mysticism. I'd never even occurred to me when I read it 10 years ago. But right now, I cannot stop thinking about this as a book that's in a deep relationship in my mind because it's not an intertext that comes up explicitly in, in the novel, with Middlemarch. And I know I, I've, I've mentioned Middlemarch every single episode of this podcast. <laughs> really and I'm four for four. But one of the things I love about Middlemarch, and I often say it's a book that taught me how to be a good person, is that it's a book about interbeing and how all of our lives are entwined with the lives of the people around us, often in very subtle or even imperceptible ways. And mm-hmm. that anything that you do has an effect on the people around you and how most of us by necessity can't think too deeply about that because that direction sort of madness lies and for our own well-being we have to sort of go around with our blinkers on and, and desensitize ourselves to the frequency of tragedy that's woven into the everyday fabric of life. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're if you too uh, alert to that, you'll just be crying all the time. <laughs> um, and that's no good. But um, Middlemarch sort of really sort of prizes at that and makes me think about how you need to sort of... No, you don't need to. It's It's not didactic, but the way of goodness is empathy basically taking your attention which is normally pointed inwards most people are the center of their own universe and occasionally trying to take that direction of your view and direct it outwards from time to time and i think this is one of the great things in general that reading can do because we talked about this in your book as well is reading is a way to exercise the empathy muscles Mm -hmm. and to get your brain off its own track and onto someone else's track for a little little bit of time.
1: It's interesting you kind of put it that way. That just kind of sparked in my mind. I used to do a lot of medieval studies, as you know, Mm -hmm. and the philosophies before individualism became a big deal did have a lot much more about the interconnectivity of everyone, which is kind of what you're talking about. But it wasn't in an empathetic way. If that makes do you understand what I'm trying to say? If this doesn't make any sense, you can cut it out.
0: <laughs> well, you say more because I think okay. I do. But say well, more.
1: basically, the idea was, you know, we in the modern mindset, we do think of ourselves as the main characters in our story. Um, people are around us are tangential. For that to work, like you said, without going crazy, we can't think too much about the minor effects all of our decisions make. In The medieval mindset, it was more this perfectly ordered universe where everyone had their place and everyone performed their function. This didn't mean they cared anymore about how their actions affected. They just saw it all as part of a natural order. Whereas what you seem to be talking about is bridging that. like People have self-determination, but alongside of that, they have the consequences of what they do. Mm -hmm. I think that's what...
0: Yeah, so... I, I want to bring this towards the thin place, uh, and so you're, you're correct, and it's actually very interesting because Julian of Norwich is a large figure in this book. She pops in from time to time, <laughs> so she's a she's a 14th century English mystic. Um, so the medieval is actually poking through the fabric of this book from time to time. Um, so Middlemarch basically posits the question: What would it be like for there to be a saint? in our modern day. Modern day being the mid-19th century uh, in, in the case of Middlemarch. And, you know, it basically begins with the thought experiment what of St. Teresa of Avila, I think I've said that right, um, were born in 19th century England as opposed to medieval Spain. Um, and I think the thin place is in a way sort of thinking about what would a saint look like in 21st century New England. <laughs> and I don't want to say that the character who I think is the vehicle for that question to be posed is a moral paragon. It's more like in in a decentered, postmodern, fragmentary uh world, which is in some ways completely the opposite of the very well-ordered world you just suggested, where no one was sure about their place. and In fact, all certainties are constantly shifting. Um, and even the sort of master narratives of modernism are, are completely broken. Um, what would a saint look like? <laughs> and uh, I think that's one of many, many questions this book is asking. But also like Middlemarch, which is not just about Dorothea, who is the Saint Teresa in question, um, but is also about all of the people in the town. This book is about all of the people in the town, all of the animals in the town, the rocks underneath the town, everything. Um, this book is an exercise in extreme empathy, and I want to really make a distinguishing line here between empathy and sympathy, where sympathy is feeling bad for someone else, and empathy is trying to feel what they feel. And at various points, in this novel, um, this sort of floating narrative focal point, which normally sort of goes between this human character and that human character and that human character, having that same Middlemarchian compassion and attempt to understand even the worst of the humans that it happens to be inhabiting, um, will land in a moose, or will land in a beaver, or will land in some lichen, and we'll get a paragraph or a page or two that sort of explores the concept of what would it be like to be some lichen <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating i love it um yeah. so it appeals it's this strange combination of christian mysticism there are saints in this book jesus is in this book julian of norwich is in this book and animism where basically everything has a life even things that are not alive. I want to talk about the writing, too. It's by Catherine Davis, and she's won some awards. I don't know what she's been at now, because this book is 2006. So actually, I guess I must have picked this up when it was new. Um, Or a new-ish, you know, a year or two old. So I'm not sure what she's been doing in the time since. But I can remember I loved this book so much, I read a couple of others by her. The writing is graceful, deeply intelligent, and assumes an intelligence in the reader. Um, I guess I want to read about a page or so, because it sort of ties together a lot of things that I've been talking about, and I think it gives a good sense of style. So, It was small, according to Julian of Norwich, no bigger than a hazelnut and round as a ball. This was in the Fen country, in the 14th century. Despite her misleading name, Julian was a woman, thirty and a half years old, an anchoress living in a cell that adjoined the parish church. Lewd, she called herself, meaning ignorant. She looked at the small, nut-sized thing lying in the palm of her hand and thought, what can this be? Everything which is made, came the answer, and Julian was amazed that it could last, because of its littleness. But it would last, little created thing that it was, she was told, and always would. Because God loved it, even though there was no peace in it. A man possessed of demons was living in the country of the Gadarenes, hiding among the tombs and terrorizing anyone who came near him. By the time Jesus came upon him, not only was the man possessed of demons so strong that he couldn't be restrained by fetters and chains, but he was also stark naked and howling. When he saw Jesus, did he run up to him and worship him? Did he tell him to go away and leave him alone? The Gospel writers don't agree on this point, except to say that Jesus drove the demons out of the man and into a nearby herd of pigs. Two thousand of them, in fact, which seems like an impossibly gigantic herd. Two thousand pigs ran violently down a steep hill and into the sea, where they, quote, choked. Shortly thereafter, the people of Gadara asked Jesus to go away. They were frightened by the wild man's rapid transformation into a man not unlike themselves, and they were furious about what he'd done to their pigs. (laughs) <laughs> which I find funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that obviously is taking place in the 14th century England, and then a basically a, a comical sort of look at a Bible story. Yes. Most of the book takes place in a small town in Vermont in the early 21st century, and it's animated by concerns like climate change, um terrorism, uh, anxiety about mortality. Um, all these lovely things that sort of haunt our modern existence and it's it's not religiously didactic it's not an argument in favor of any particular spiritual tradition it is just animated by this deep empathy and mystical i don't know that's that's the best word i have for it this this sense of there being some sort of animating mystery that is beyond our real comprehension and that the world is a very strange place uh i guess is my best way to put it
1: yeah no makes me want to reread it actually (laughs) (laughs) because like i said it didn't make much of an impression on me when i read it i don't remember it very well at all now maybe you know how it is sometimes you have high expectations
0: yeah i i I know i have no doubt in my mind that i oversold it (laughs) I'm certain I did.
1: Yeah, and also too, when you're reading a lot, now it can go two ways because I'm sure you've you've had the experience too, where you're reading like ten books a month, but <clears> there's <throat> still one or two that stands out. Because that would have been one of my heavy duty reading periods, probably.
0: Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's actually something I wanted to talk about was this idea that in a reading life, you'll read. Thousands of books, probably. Let's say in, in a good year, you get through 40 or 50, maybe. Maybe more. I, I think my best year, I got through like 70. Um, so, you know, yeah, a few thousand books, even even counting the periods of lull. Um, but, like, don't remember all of them. In fact, many of them, you'll probably remember almost nothing.
1: So frustrating. <laughs> You know you read it, but it's like it doesn't count because you can't talk about it at a party or on a podcast or something.
0: exactly. It's like, I read that. I think it's about a guy. (laughs)
1: Hmm. I kind of remember the cover.
0: (laughs) Yep. Um, But there are a few books which are so important. Either they teach you something that changes who you are or how you see the world or just meant so much to you that you just sort of carry them around as sort of little extensions of yourself inside yourself um and, and i think for me this book even though it absolutely lit me up and there were little little passages from it that i i would go back to from time to time i in fact I think one of them is still on my Facebook uh, profile like description. Um, it's something along the lines of, every single thing in life is like Chekhov's gun, trustfully casting before it the shadow of its final shape, if only we knew how to see it clearly. Is that where that's from? Yeah, this is okay. from The Thin Place by Catherine <laughs> Davis. Yeah, uh, Which is uh, this other lovely thing. I, I put some other passage on Twitter when I was reading this um, that really struck to me about how if a life could be absor- uh, if a life could be observed from outside of the life it would just look like a thing and it, the person would only feel lost when they were inside of it and i thought that was lovely and yeah. i had some pushback from a follower who was like oh it sounds too much like predestination and everything and i'm like i guess but i think it's more like the understanding yeah. that time is a dimension just like the three dimensions of space that we live in and if you could exist on a higher dimensional level where you could perceive time the same way that we perceive depth then you would see all of a thing at once (laughs) and it would just be a a thing (laughs) yeah
1: decisions that you make or are forced upon you have consequences you can't foresee that's all it really means
0: yeah yeah like
1: i didn't know that going to law school would result in a career in archives but it did and if i hadn't gone to law school i wouldn't have made that particular turn most likely yeah
0: and sometimes i certainly
1: felt lost when i dropped out yeah (laughs) Uh,
0: i mean sometimes it's really you cannot predict what will end up being a very meaningful Decision. It could be <laughs> a very small decision that feels trivial at the time. I yeah, like deciding to go to law school is a fairly large decision, but sure. you know, choosing to sit next to a person on the bus that you end up having a conversation with that could change your life. You know,
1: or like when that time I went to see you in a play on a Friday instead of a Saturday, and I wound <laughs> up meeting my husband.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> could have been totally different. Yep.
0: Uh-huh. Oh,
1: actually. The mm-hmm. guy I was seeing deciding to break up with me the week before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Who knew?
1: Because I would and, have gone with him otherwise.
0: Yeah. And I mean, looking back over a life, that can look like predestination, but it's, it's just simply the fact of it having happened. So now, now it makes a kind of interesting sense. Yeah. And be like, oh, the, what, 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 a, what a chance. And yeah, um, it, is, it was nice because, I don't know, I sometimes feel fairly lost. And just because life is so much. And uh, it's sort of nice to think that, oh, yes, but if life could be observed from outside of life, it would just be a thing. Yeah, <laughs> like, it would
1: It would all make sense in the end.
0: Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and uh, this is one of the things that this book gives to me is just standing, waiting for a streetcar to come pick me up. It makes me think about how all the people around me have... Things going on in their head, feelings going on in their heart. Some people are having great days, some people are having terrible days. But also little things like, at what moment the streetcar arrives, where I sit on the streetcar, all of it is meaningful. And all of it is filled with a kind of potential for meaning and beauty. Which is a nice antidote to feeling um, numbed and bored of the world. Yeah, Uh, especially...
1: Lately, it's so hard not to feel jaded and cynical. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like you said, um, everyone has thoughts and feelings. And like Lucy Nisley points out, everyone, I don't know if she put it specifically this way, but everyone was a baby. Everyone was carried inside a woman. Yeah. And uh, we all go through the same pain.
0: Uh, and to me, I mean, it brings me back to empathy and it brings it back to the lessons I got from Middlemarch and I can't believe I never put these two novels together before um because I mean this is a story of a town and the people in the town and the various little petty squabbles and concerns that they all have uh their comings and goings which is partially what Middlemarch is about and Middlemarch will stop from time to time to have these sort of passages of sort of deeper philosophical and theological questionings and uh The Thin Place does that too. Uh, it's just one is very postmodern and one is very victorian <laughs> um and i I like both those flavors, so I like both these books so
1: and I think empathy too is gets back to why we read in the first place
0: mm-hmm.
1: um even as opposed to other media, a lot of times books are more so inside someone's mind, yes, than like a movie, you're watching a character, and that's not to say you don't have empathy, mm-hmm. of course you do, but in the book, so often you're inside. It's almost like being inside someone's soul. Mm -hmm. You're feeling their experience in the manner it's presented. And because you read, you know, generally silently, it's inside your own head that it's happening.
0: Yes. Your inner monologue is sort of hijacked and a different monologue takes place. Exactly,
1: It's It's like experiencing someone else's inner monologue. And that's how we learn empathy. And that's why we should read diverse uh, authors.
0: (laughs) I agree. Yeah. (laughs) And and
1: people whose experience may not necessarily be like your own
0: just this morning so uh amanda palmer is a songwriter i i I quite like although she's been quiet for the last six or seven years she has a new album out and um it is friggin devastating (laughs) like but she has a song on there called judy bloom which is basically an ode to judy Judy bloom Bloom. yeah so does amanda (laughs) and um I was going to read this verse out here because this is like what we're talking about. Um, I don't remember my friends from gymnastics class, but I remember when Dini was at the school dance, Buddy feeling her up in the locker room. Margaret bored, counting hats in the synagogue. Davey was stirring the tea that you couldn't drink. Tony was watching his so-called friend shoplifting. All of them lived in my head, quietly whispering, you are not so strange. I don't remember the details of seventh grade. All I remember is lying and being afraid. But I don't forget Catherine and Mike were going all the way. Steph on the scale in the bathroom alone that day. Karen pretending to puke so her dad would stay. Margaret arguing with God while she masturbated. All of those stacked in my head like a love letter. All of those saying, Amanda, you know better. You are not to blame. The world's a frightening place. So go on and think how you want. You will not be alone in your thoughts. Well, you will, but you won't in a way. Because a girl thought it too in a book that the library bought is lovely
1: that's amazing i want to cry (laughs) oh man yeah no actually judy bloom owns a bookstore in key west and i kind of want to go to
0: key west i did not know that she
1: does she owns a legit independent bookstore
0: wow okay and i want to go to key west too
1: it's actually walking distance from the hemingway house yeah and it's, it's Key West, so you can go to Margaritaville, too. It's a big <laughs> to <wanna> go. <laughs> also, Amazing. it's very cold where I am.
0: Yes, yes. And uh, my understanding is that while well, a lot of Florida, not so good, Key West, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs>
1: let's uh, all go. Yeah, let's all go to
0: Key West. <laughs> the next episode of Dear Reader will be uh, recorded on location in Key West.
1: Excellent. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, uh, yeah, we should, we should sign off then.
1: Yeah, we should. I All bet right. Marty was good. Say bye, bye, Marty.
0: Bye, Marty. Uh, thank you for joining us on Dear Reader. Yes, thank you. Um, I have been Michael.
1: <laughs> and I'm Emily, still.
0: <laughs> I hope to continue to be Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you'd like to reach out to us on Twitter, we are at DearReaderFM. And you can email us at DearReader at Megaphonic.fm. Uh, we are a Megaphonic podcast. That is the network that we call home and uh, there's lots of great shows over there including a couple of other bookie shows the spouter Inn, where chris and suzanne are looking at the sort of great books of the canon and kind of interrogating what that even means in a very combination academic and personal kind of way and there's a new podcast that is launching very soon that's called by the bywater which is all about tolkien stuff Well, I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, me too. All right, take care.
1: Talk soon.